Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. It has inspired movies, fanatics, and cults. But this can't be the reason the Spirit inspired the Revelation, nor the reason the Church has kept it all these centuries. This year, we use the inspired visions of Revelation. The angels, demons, men, and monsters to reveal to us the mystery of Christmas. Good morning, everyone. Well, it is the third Sunday of Advent. We call this the Sunday of Joy. It's a Sunday so different that it gets a candle all its own color, the rose-colored candle. Uh, We are studying the book of Revelation this Advent season, which is odd as well. This is a book, Revelation is not often associated either with joy or with Christmas, but we are going to get around to both this morning. We are going to hear from the Christmas story and words about joy, and it's all going to come from this book we're studying, the Revelation. So let's start with joy. Last week, for those of you who saw the drama that we had last week, the uh, girl character kept referring to a joyful passage she was searching for in Revelation. At the end of the drama, she said, I finally found it, and I can't wait for you to find it too, right? And she didn't tell you what it was. That is because we're going to find it together right now. The passage that she was referring to was Revelation chapter 21. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we will be in Revelation chapter 21 today. This will be the easiest Bible find you've ever done here, um, other than when we preach Genesis chapter 1. For this one, you start at the back of the Bible and hang a left through two chapters, and you are there. So Revelation chapter 21, uh, let's uh, start with verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Doesn't that sound really good right about now in the Christmas season? God with us, no more death. No more crying, no more pain, all these things gone forever. It is the season of joy, and yet many of us this morning are not living in joy for a variety of reasons. Maybe uh, some of you, some of us are buried in debt. You know, in order to become a uh, pastor in our type of church, I had to have a Master of Divinity degree. So I took out a student loan to do that study. Every day I did not pay back that student loan, it grew $5 because of the interest. So every morning that I woke up and did not pay back that student loan, it was like having to fish around in my pocket to find a five to set it on fire. If most of your debt is on credit cards, which can have a much higher interest rate, you may be doing that at the rate of $20 a day. Check your balance, check your interest rate. And divide it by 365 and see what's happening to you every morning when you get up. Much of what we want to do, we can't do. Much of what we want to have, we can't have this morning because we're paying interest instead. And it steals our joy. Some of us are separated from joy, uh, crying and in pain this morning because we can't stay 
healthy. I don't know if our community here, Lakeland community, has suffered as much cancer and sickness as, as we have this year. I naively thought that this sort of thing would first, there'd be a wave that would pass through my parents' generation, and then I'd have a chance to study it, look at it, make peace with it, and then it would begin happening to my friends. But that's not the way it has happened. There is also running through our culture um, a rash of unbelief that's stealing our joy. Lots of people, but especially teenagers, um, are not just questioning their faith. Questioning your faith can be a very healthy thing to do in the right step. Um, but rather a rash of folks denying their faith without asking very many questions at all. Dumping faith suddenly, especially if you're in a family that believes or is in an active church community like this one, can put you in a very awkward spot. It can be very uncomfortable. Yet, I realize you can't just ignore the questions you're having. You can't just throw a switch and decide to believe something because it would make the house more peaceful around the holidays, when in the inside, you really don't believe it or you're not sure. So lots of things making joy elusive. Now this wonderful passage from Revelation makes some big promises to us. Look at the end of verse 6. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And yet many of us are not this morning drinking from some spring of living water. Why is that? Well, the difficult but true answer is that this promise isn't given to everyone. There is a condition with this promise. Verse 7. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But... Cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Grim passage. It says that joy is offered to all, but when it comes to receiving it, there are two groups. The victorious, they inherit it. A new, a new creation with streams of living water, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. But there is this randomized list of vices, all types of vices, and it says that people who do this sort of stuff, they don't receive God's inheritance. Now, the first question probably to come is, uh, is that a punishment? Is that a punishment from God from doing those things? I, I'm certainly open to the fact that it could be, but as I have read the scriptures over the last 10 years, I've come to believe that, no, actually, that's not a punishment from God. That's just a fact. Take our debt, for instance, my wife and I. Now, when I graduated and I got a job at this church, my uh, annual income instantly rose $20,000 a year. Now, our whole school bill was only twenty-five five. So had we just continued to live at the same level we lived as a student for one more year plus two months, we could have paid the whole thing back in full and only paid $1,000 in interest. But no, because we wanted to go on vacation and we wanted to travel and we wanted to have a fun budget so we could go to the movies at the theater again. And we'd worked so hard and sacrificed so much during those three years of seminary that we wanted a reward. And we wanted it now. Not in 14 months, right now. 
So we had it. We did all that stuff. And you know what else we got for our reward? We got to pay an additional $10,000 in interest and keep worrying about that debt for an additional nine years. Now, that wasted $9,000 and the resulting loss of joy was not a punishment from God. It was just a fact. That's just what happens. God did not have to conjure up that angst and worry. He was not punishing us. That's, we bought that and now we're getting paid for it. That's just what happens when you can't delay gratification. My wife and I failed the marshmallow test. Do you guys know what the marshmallow test is? I hear some psychology students out there giggling. Uh, researchers have done the marshmallow test, hundreds of them, all over the world for decades. Uh, basically, it tests a child's ability to delay gratification. We have done this test three times here in this congregation. Basically, here's what you do. You take kids ages three to five, and you put them in a room by themselves or with a sibling, and you give them a marshmallow. And you tell them, this is your marshmallow, and you can eat this. But if you don't eat it, if you'll wait for 15 minutes, I'll come back and give you two more marshmallows, and you'll walk out of here with three if you can delay gratification. Well, we did this two weeks ago with some of the cutest kids Lakeland Community has to offer. We call that marshmallow grabbing at our house when you go for the, the quick one. And uh, that uh, about, half, about half the kids here did that, so better than national average. Um, let's apply this concept of marshmallow grabbing to the, all the sickness that has gone through the congregation. Now, we have to be careful with this one. Some of you are so ill, I, I frankly don't know how you're here. But others, well, let me ask you this. Are you doing things that bring joy to your life even though you're sick? Hanging out with friends, that hobby you enjoyed. You could do it. Are you? Are you? Assuming you're, you're not too sick to do it. Do you even try, even though you feel awful? Do you keep working, assuming that you're well enough to work? Again, if you could. Or have you just collapsed into a depression? Cringing. Why me? Why me? Well, for some folks, trying to engage in life under these circumstances just sounds too hard. So I'll just, I'll just take my single marshmallow now and I'll just stay in bed all day or just watch TV all the time. Now that type of depression, that loss of joy, that is not punishment from God. That's just the fact of what happens when you can't bring yourself to go on living even though your health is bad. Apply this marshmallow-grabbing concept to doubt. So you've got questions about your faith. You know your pastor does difficult questions series every year. Most pastors these days do. You could meet with him or her, and you could ask your questions. Yeah, but a lot of people say, I have all these hobbies. I'm really busy. I do fun things on the weekends. I don't have time to meet with someone. So, so I'll just visit some atheist websites instead. I'll just click on some snazzy looking YouTube videos. I'll just read a few articles or some blogs. I certainly don't have time to read a whole book. Um, and I'll just handle my doubt that way. Now, all the upheaval and frustration that that brings to your family and friends who do believe, that makes your world now awkward, 
Uh, That is not you being persecuted by people who believe. That is the consequence of, of what things look like when you take an important decision and you engage in lazy doubt. You try to settle this very important question all by yourself, just you and your smartphone. You just get it done in about eight weeks, call it your spiritual crisis and move on and start grabbing your marshmallow. No one is oppressing you. You are a victim of your own intellectual sloppiness and lethargy. Revelation says to have joy, you must be victorious. Verse 7, all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, what does that mean to be victorious? Well, if you read the 20 chapters of Revelation that lead up to this one, the definition of be victorious becomes very, very clear. It means endure suffering. That is the message of Revelation in every chapter. To be victorious means to do what is right with patient endurance, even though you are suffering. It means don't grab the marshmallow. Wait. But according to those early marshmallow studies, according to our own study, two-thirds of us don't have what it takes to wait for three marshmallows later. 67% of us at a psychological level cannot delay gratification. The true majority of human beings will never have joy, never be victorious, never receive the inheritance of God because on the inside we are just deficient. We grab the marshmallow every time. Consumer debt, feeling sorry for ourselves, and lazy doubt. Verse 8, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Merry Christmas. A lot of you are hoping there's more to the message than that. And there is. Did you know they started redoing the marshmallow test in the early 2000s with a twist? Some genius about human behavior, I don't know who the first one to do this was, uh, decided to first establish trust with the test subject or break trust with the test subject right before the experiment to see what difference it made. So they would bring the kids a cup that had about two or three crayons in it, and they would say, uh, you can color with these crayons if you like, but if you wait five minutes, I'm going to, I'll bring you a whole art set that is filled with colors and markers and crayons that you can color with. So they'd leave, and they'd come back in five minutes, and they said, oh, you know what? I looked everywhere. I couldn't find that art set, so sorry about that. Anyways, here's a marshmallow. Well, after breaking the art set promise, the number of kids who would wait for three marshmallows went way, way down. Conversely, if they actually brought them the art set and let them color with it and then made them the marshmallow promise, the rate of success would go way, way up. Meaning that delayed gratification was not an inborn genetic trait that some of our little darlings have and some don't. It was simply a matter of this. It was testing, did these children have a recent experience that told them, if you obey adults, they will follow through with their promises, or not? This tells us two things. One, as an aside, and for parents, 
that when mom says, wait a minute and I'll play with you, just wait a minute, go over there, do that, and then I'll play with you, and then doesn't, she may be greatly hindering her child's ability to delay gratification. That when dad says, oh, you know, just let the ice cream truck go by. Um, I can go to Hy-Vee and buy you an entire box of bomb pops for the price of that one they sell off the truck. It matters a great deal if he does it or not. I owe my kids three boxes of bomb pops, I realize, and I'm going to get them after this service. It also tells us this, that as adults, our ability to endure suffering for a delayed joy may have little to do with our genetics and everything to do with our ability to trust God. And now, here comes the Christmas story. Very early in Scripture, God begins making promises of an eternal reign on earth, a new kingdom. Um, In Genesis chapter 49, it promises a lion from the tribe of Judah, whom all nations will honor. In Samuel, it promises a uh, king on the throne of David for all eternity. In Isaiah, it promises a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace, a suffering servant who will take away the sins of the world. But all those promises fall into shadow When the Persians conquer Israel, followed immediately by the Greeks, followed immediately by the Roman Empire, they conquer Israel and they take away their king. So that by the time in the New Testament, not only is there no descendant from the line of David on the throne, there's no one even from the tribe of Judah on the throne. In fact, there's not even an Israelite on the throne. At the opening of the New Testament, King Herod is king of Israel and he's not an Israelite, he's Hasmonean. And he's totally in bed with the Roman Empire. But as we all know, on Christmas Eve, Mary and Joseph, a descendant of King David, but he's about as much in line for the throne as some of you who are related to the Queen of England are. But they check into a stable because there's no room in an inn and there give birth to a son who will change the world forever. He teaches us who God really is. And he shows us who God is in himself by living among us. He is both God and man and nature. He is crucified and still forgives. That's where he wins the victory, by enduring and suffering. That's why, let's see the different stained glass if we could. The lamb. The lamb, remember, endured suffering, and that's how Christ conquered evil and death. And these saints around the throne are told to endure suffering. He defeats death by rising again. He ascends into heaven, but he promises to return and establish a kingdom with streams of living water, no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. Now, after that, the scriptures start calling him the firstborn of all creation. They start calling him the first fruits of the resurrection, the down payment, the deposit. Look, here's a couple of them. Uh, Colossians 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Ephesians 1.13, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. All these phrases about Jesus, he's the firstborn, he's the first fruits, he's the deposit, he's the seal, he's the down payment. These all mean the same thing, that Jesus, come at Christmas, 
is God's art set. It's the first promise fulfilled. And because he fulfilled the first promise, we therefore can have trust in him to fulfill the second promise, the coming kingdom. Look at everything God had to overcome to fulfill the promise to send Jesus. The world was not set up for the coming Messiah and he reworked every bit of it and made it happen. This shows he is more than able to fulfill his promise of the three marshmallows which are to redo all, redo all of heaven and earth into a kingdom of righteousness and truth. Verse 5. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. The promise of God represented at Christmas. To have joy this season, we now need only to call upon this promise and all of the power that it contains. So after seven years of making little or no progress on our debt, my wife and I decided to lay off the single marshmallows. We looked at God's promises that if we obey him and his wisdom now, he will provide for us joy. We don't have to buy joy for ourselves on credit. So we skipped some summer vacations and she took an extra job and we stopped going to movies at the theater unless there were lightsabers involved. (laughs) And literally, six days ago, we wrote the last check. We're debt free! (laughs) And you can be too once you trust in the Lord to provide all you need to be happy while you ignore the single marshmallows this world is pushing at you today. Because you know when God makes all things new, all that junk you bought on credit by then will be completely gone, completely unimportant. For those of us who are sick, but still able to live, the promise of the new kingdom says, live! God, after all, does have the power to heal. And even if he doesn't heal, we see in Christ that he has the power to raise the dead. So remember the hope of the resurrection and live now. Get out of bed. Get off the couch. Go to your physical therapy. Leave the marshmallow on the table. For you know when God makes all things new, including your own body, all your tears will be gone. All your suffering will have been temporary. Only the life you lived will be remembered. So make memories for eternity today. Live. And for those of you who doubt every bit of this, you are this morning literally surrounded by people who have grappled with many of the same questions you are grappling with. Look around, sense their presence. You are literally surrounded by flesh and blood people who have grappled with these same questions. You want to be an intellectual? You want to be a real intellectual? Take the hard journey. Take the hard journey of actually exploring various answers to your questions. Explore those non-Christian answers. See what they have to offer. Test them through. Test their promises. And explore the Christian answers as well. 
And for the Christian point of view, I am right here. There is no need for you to take to the internet to get the Christian point of view. I'm just going to say it. Some of the meanest, ugliest, and frankly, stupidest of our brothers and sisters in Christ have made websites. And you don't need them. You don't need them. You have a family right here to make that search in. It is literally my job to help people explore questions of the faith. Make me earn it this week. Last year, I led a group for eight months on difficult questions, and I would do it again if I thought there were a handful of people who would actually show up. Get off the internet blogs. Those guys are selling self-published books and ad space. And you really ought to pay attention to the ads that they're showing because that shows what crowd you're running with. Doubt has become a business. Just as in some quarters, Christianity has become a business. So you need to know who you're tangled up with. That's why all the financial dealings of this church are printed in the bulletin every week. And you can come and see a line by line of the budget anytime you like. Because in different forms, about a million dollars a year rolls through this place. And you need to know, is this a money-making thing? Is this line in someone's pocket? Somebody getting rich off this? Or is this really a place that seriously wants to engage in spiritual questions? Get that trust established. And then let's get to work. Put down the marshmallow of the easy, quick answer. You have a real family here, and we are not here to fix you. We are not here to indoctrinate you. We are not here to judge you as if doubts about God mean you're broken or something's wrong with you. You know how I know that's not true? Because every saint in the Bible and in history afterward had doubts about God. If I judge you, if we judge you for having doubts about God, we might as well be judging the Apostle Peter. We might as well be judging C.S. Lewis. We might as well be judging Mother Teresa. They all had serious doubts about God. That's part of the journey for folks like you. We know that. You know us. We don't treat people badly for doubts around here. We're here to walk with you on a real intellectual journey of faith. Jesus was big enough to hear questions. And there is joy if you can trust him with yours. And when he makes all things new, all your questions will be answered, including the ones that no one can answer right now. I want to introduce you to a a friend of mine I've known since he was a baby. But when we first had our first serious conversation about God, I asked him on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you in the existence of God? He said, I'll give him a one and a half. So that's where we started. And, uh, And then he took an active journey. And so here to share his story about doubt in a church community, let's welcome Henry Barr. Hello. Good morning. My name is Henry Barr, and this is my story. I've been struggling accepting that God is a real being watching over us for a long time now. I've always wanted to believe that he's there consciously watching, but for too long it seemed a pipe dream. It simply seems too good to be true that such a God could exist. My parents noticed and pushed me to attend a class offered here at Lakeland. Those questioning their faith were invited, and the pastor took the time to address our questions. 
At first, I didn't know what to think. Since so few, pu- 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 since so few people doubting the presence of God actually enrolled, it was open to Christians struggling with their faith. In the end, it was usually a group of five. Four adults confident in God's presence and one outlier, me. During the class, I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and that's when I really seemed to take off. I continued attending sessions about every other week, and the pastor did a really good job of clearing up what the goal of Christianity was. He made a lot of points that shook my fundamental understanding of the Christian faith. He said things like, there's no minimum quality of character required to gain access to heaven. We don't slide through. Instead, we take a journey in our physical life that continues forever into the afterlife. Those growing angrier with age, becoming more resentful of of other ideas, races, and cultures will continue that journey and will not be banished to hell for their evils. Rather, their spirits will continue to grow more corrupt, and it is not God's disapproval that leads them into hell. It is their own decision to reject God that keeps them from entering heaven. When the group ended our semi-weekly meetings, I sought out a spiritual mentor. He gave me a book by Bill Hybels called Who Are You When Nobody's Looking? and Who Is This Jesus? by Michael Green. They focused on the proper character of a Christian. At first, I was going to my mentor for a quick answer. I wanted to know what it takes to become a Christian. I felt that I could speak to the pastor and get some kind of degree in spirituality, know that I was doing enough, I didn't have to go any further, I'd meet the minimum, and now I'm set. But he made clear that that was not the point of Christianity. We're not doing something because God wants us to. We're becoming better people because God wants us to be better people, to be happier people. When Garrett asked me to do a My Story, I was a little surprised. I'm nowhere near done with my journey, and even in the past few months where I've actively been searching for God, I often feel he evades me. The closest thing I've come to feeling him reach directly into my life are warm feelings, uh, the urge to help others, strong sense of community and serenity that I've never felt before, which is great, but I still have no definite touch. Be it on purpose or not, I think Garrett made a very good decision asking me to talk about my story so early. I haven't reached my destination, but I don't think I ever will. If there's one thing I think I truly learned about becoming a better Christian, about becoming a better person, it's that there's no end. Months ago, this would have been entirely discouraging to me. However, now I feel that I know the true meaning of it. We have no limit. We can become as great as we allow God to make us. And if the goal is happiness, it means we can only become happier. I'm Henry Barr, and this is my story. But it's not the end. I think Henry might be one of the only people I ever lent a book to that, that actually read it. <laughs> and, and he could devour an entire uh, book in a day and a half. I was so impressed with his engagement and, and thirst to find answers on his journey. And that's all we're encouraging every one of you to do. So we've talked about a lot of different joy-stealing uh, topics today, but, but what is yours? What is your marshmallow that you keep grabbing because you keep losing sight of God's promise? Remember the meaning of Christmas. That God can move against overwhelming odds and do what he says he will do. And here's what he says he will do. Revelation chapter 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Now in light of that, what will you do with your single marshmallow today? I think that I'm going to roast my single marshmallow on the candle of joy. (laughs) So, uh, all of you wish you had some refreshments right about now. And in churches all over the world, this is the time for refreshments. We call them the Lord's Table. When remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. That's what I wanted. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. You see, everyone, Jesus knew that we would grab that marshmallow before we were even born. Yet he gave his life and his blood to forgive us, to show us, I forgive you for that. I knew that was going to happen. That did not surprise me. I love you. said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, the kingdom of joy. So that's what we come to celebrate, the joy that Christ brings us through his victory of endurance and suffering. And that gives us the strength to achieve our victory by enduring suffering until his kingdom come. And so we tear off a piece of bread and when we eat it, we remember his first promise to come. And remember his second promise to come again. And we do what we do to achieve the victory in between those promises. So let us stand together and proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Stop right there. See it? Christ has died and Christ has risen. That was the first promise. That was the art set. Christ will come again. That's the three marshmallows. We've seen the first part. We're celebrating it right now. You know the second part's coming. Let's continue. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Christ be as real to you as this food and this drink. And now, everyone wants to sing Joy to the World, right? It's a joy Sunday. The most natural Christmas song to sing is Joy to the World. Did you know that Joy to the World was not first written as a Christmas song? 
It was written on a Sunday when they were going to be reading Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is about God's coming kingdom and his promise to reign. And joy to the world was looking forward to that. Now, just like we did today, many Christians have connected God's first promise to come as a guarantee of the second. And so, joy to the world has migrated back to become a Christmas song. But as we sing it today, let's remember the art set that God brought in Jesus at Christmas, guaranteeing the three marshmallows of the kingdom to come. We'll remember all that as we tear off a piece of bread, we dip it in the cup, we take it into ourselves. And that promise gives us the strength to endure for the joy to come. Let us sing and come forward when you're ready. Amen. For everyone who... uh, looking for a Pinterest moment and traditions, you thought, oh, that's fun, roasting your marshmallow over the candle of joy. Uh, Don't do it! It tastes like melted wax when you cook something over a candle. So if your favorite... I notice there's not a bite missing this service. No, I actually took a bite of it last service, and that was bad, bad, bad. So if your favorite holiday treat is melted crayons, then go for it. But, uh... Whew! Yeah, from my home to yours. Um, Watch and pray. Those who are longing await his appearing. Watch, wait, listen, go in peace.